John, at the end of his life, writes, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. And he's not writing about his biological children. He's writing about uh, spiritual children uh, in the church. And it should be a a joy and a delight uh, for us uh, to recognize that uh, Katie in her few years here uh, was called uh, by the Lord uh, to leave our midst and uh, her other other church uh, in Elmira uh, and to follow the Lord. And to be honest, one of the things that is uh, distressing and encouraging all at the same time is that you you hate to lose someone like Katie from our midst week in, week out, but there really is nothing greater than to see people who are following the Lord, wherever that looks like, whatever it takes them. So, Katie, thank you for being faithful to God uh, while you are here, for continuing being faithful to Him while you're in Columbia, for updating us this morning, and uh, for being faithful to go back again. And just so you know, uh, I'm I'm looking to go down there sometime. So, give me time off, and uh, and I'll do that. All right, uh, Luke chapter nine. Uh, Luke chapter nine. We're going to look at verses twenty-eight through thirty-six. Uh, Luke chapter nine twenty eight through thirty six. This is the word of God. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. Before we uh, unpack this a little bit, let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for uh, the gift of your Son, the gift of eternal life. We thank you for who you are, that you are our Father and our God, and that you are with us wherever we can go. Lord, I pray that this morning your Spirit will open uh, our understanding to your Word. Lord, help us to see some of the riches of it, to see some of the connections that are forged here in this passage, which with other places in scripture. 
Help us to adore and magnify Jesus and help us to be obedient to your words that you spoke from the cloud. Help us to listen to your son. Uh, Lord, we thank you for, uh, for Katie. We thank you for what you have done in her life, what you continue to do in her life and through her, uh, the lives of all those that she knows and touches. And Father, I pray that you will use her mightily, uh, that uh, Columbia, that school will be a place where you are honored, where your spirit is active and present, and where a great, a great renewal and revival uh, begins and spreads to many places around the world. I pray, Lord, that you will prepare our hearts uh, as a church, uh, even now for uh, the fall. I pray that you will be preparing hearts of university students. Uh, lead them here if we can be a place that encourages them and that instructs them in your truth. Uh, Lord, we pray that we will uh, be a place where you are honored and where your word is proclaimed. And Father, we pray that we will be a place uh, and a people marked by walking in your truth. Be with us, we pray. Uh, Equip us by your spirit to do what you would have us to do and to be what you want us to be. Give us great wisdom uh, for the days ahead. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, uh, speaking of missions, I this week actually just found out that my uh, religious visa application uh, to Cuba was approved. And so I appreciate those of you who are praying. And that's great, Sam. I, I appreciate I'm on my way. Notice that... The only person who's clapping is someone who's actually works with me in the office. So that's not quite sure how to take that. Um, yeah, so uh, my religious visa came through, and thank you for praying. Uh, someone actually asked me about it two weeks ago, so have you, re- have you received your visa yet? And it did, hadn't occurred to me up until they asked that maybe I should actually be alarmed about that, uh, that I hadn't. And so I contacted the mission, and I said, I, you know, I, I haven't got my visa. Is this a problem? They seemed, seemed to say, well... Not that we know of, you know, it's probably fine. Uh, some of the administrative ability in some countries is not ex- extraordinarily strong. And so sometimes you wonder uh, how well the paperwork's being filed and all of the rest. But in God's grace, that has come through. And uh, time goes so frighteningly quick. I leave in the middle of July, and that's about one month away. So we need to get ready uh, for that. Now, uh, this text is very, very rich. Uh, There's a lot going on here, uh, particularly a lot being drawn in from the Old Testament. And this is one of the, this is, this is one of those passages that teaches you how to read the Old Testament. It teaches you to be excited about the Old Testament. It teaches you to interpret Jesus through previous revelation and to interpret previous revelation through Jesus. And so when we come to this, we should come to look at it and pay very careful attention. The context is very specific. Luke isn't normally one who gives us very specific time indicators, but he does here. About eight days after Jesus said this. So he's drawing this event into close temporal proximity with what Jesus has just finished saying. Now, what was it that Jesus had just finished saying then? Well, you'll remember the previous pericope, the previous section, is about Peter confessing that Jesus is the Messiah. This is the first time that anyone of the disciples has confessed that Jesus is the Messiah, but they don't understand what that means. 
They have a misunderstanding of messiahship bound up with political interpretations, bound up with military uh, interpretations. And so Jesus has to say to them, first of all, don't tell anyone. But then he also has to explain to them, yes, you are blessed that you that the Father has revealed to you that I am the Messiah. Being the Messiah means that I need to go to Jerusalem and suffer and be rejected and die and be raised to life on the third day. The disciples have no idea what he's talking about. In Matthew's account, uh, Matthew records the fact that Peter turns around and rebukes him. Peter, who has just said, Jesus, you're the Messiah, understands Messiahship so little that he turns around and rebukes the one who is the Messiah. Never, Lord, this will never happen to you, which is an amazing thing. What Peter is really doing is he is saying, you're the Messiah, but I understand what it means to be the Messiah better than you do. You have just said you're going to die, but you're not, because that's not what Messiah does. Jesus explains that he will suffer and die, and then he also teaches about discipleship. If the Messiah will suffer and die, disciples will suffer and die. Pick up your cross daily and follow me. And then he says that some of you who are standing here will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And it's almost certainly a reference to resurrection and ascension, that sort of down payment, the inauguration of the kingdom. However, it's also tied to this event of the transfiguration. After Jesus said this, he goes up onto the mountainside about eight days later. And so now when he had told them, some of you will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God, Jesus is now going to show them the glory of the king in whom the kingdom actually has significance. So Jesus, in revealing his own glory, shows them what the king is like who reigns in the kingdom. If you see the king, you see the kingdom. He's showing a, he's giving them a foretaste of the end time glory that will be present when the kingdom is consummated. But the kingdom only has glory because of the king. As him, uh, the sands of time are sinking. Uh, I won't quote it for you now. Uh, well worth pondering uh, the words in it. Well worth looking it up. The lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. In other words, you take Jesus out of heaven and there's no glory left. Uh, you take the king out of the kingdom, there's no glory left. But if you can actually see the king as he really is, you see the power and the unstoppable nature of the glory of the Lord in his kingdom. So Jesus takes Peter, John, and James with him up onto a mountain to pray. And Luke says, as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Now, I have mentioned before that very rarely does Luke tell us exactly what it is that Jesus is praying, but he very frequently, far more than any of the other synoptic gospels, he very frequently tells us that Jesus was praying and that major events in redemptive history happen after or during the experience of Jesus at prayer. Here is another one. Jesus goes up onto a mountainside to pray. So what happens next is in response to his communion with God. Again, this is one of those sort of uh, tacitly implied to us that if Jesus in his earthly life was a man of prayer, 
And there is a close connection in Luke's gospel between times when Jesus was praying and major events in redemptive history, major events in terms of the life of Christ, major events in terms of the life of his disciples. Then God seems to act after prayer. There's a connection between prayer and the revealing of God. And so for us, if Jesus prays and then God does remarkable things again and again and again and again in the Gospel of Luke, it is a sign to us that we are to imitate Jesus and we are to expect and anticipate God doing great things as we are a praying people. Now, we have to be careful with this, but you could also say that you you, you could... You could infer from this that you you shouldn't expect God to do great things unless you are a praying people. Uh, Jesus himself is at prayer when God does great things in his life. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed. Now, I think it's very important to understand that what's going on here is not that at this time Jesus has glory given to him. The Father does not take Jesus and add glory to him. What's really going on here on the Mount of Transfiguration, in a sense, is the veil is being peeled back. Uh, The incarnate body of Jesus, in some ways, masks his glory. In other words, Jesus, to accommodate the weakness of human beings, does not come in the full, unshielded revelation of his glory as God in human form. Uh, he comes and, and he he mutes his glory. Uh, he veils his splendor. But here the disciples are given a sneak peek at what Jesus is really like. He does not become more glorious on the Mount of Transfiguration than he was, you know, at any point in his earthly life up up until then. All that you are allowed to do is you are allowed to see, uh, Peter, James, and John are allowed to see, this is who he is. This is the one that you walk with. This is the one that you listen to. This is the one that you eat with. This is the one who you saw do all those miracles. This is the one who is the glory of God. And every moment of his existence, he is that, he is this glorious, not one bit less. But it's veiled. The full revelation of the glory of Jesus Christ is veiled in human form. But here, here is a glimpse of his truer nature. Here is a glimpse of what he is really, really like. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. Now, Moses had uh, died a number of years before. And Elijah, you remember, was you know, taken up to heaven in a flaming chariot. Here, this isn't really the point of the text. But here it's just sort of taken for granted that, of course, they're still alive. Of course, death was not the cessation of Moses' existence. Uh, Of course, Elijah was not snatched up into the sky and obliterated. Of course, they're still alive. People still exist after death. There is life after death. There is life, you know, beyond the grave. And here they appear. They are alive and well, 
they themselves are in glorious splendor because they share in the imparted atmosphere of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they are talking with Jesus. Now, of all of the things they could be talking about, at this great moment, you you have to know that what they're discussing is going to be highly significant. Now, I don't know if it had been a while, maybe since Moses and Elijah had talked with the second person in the Trinity. And so maybe they started out with some talk about the weather, you know, it's just to warm up or whatever. Uh, but they're not just idly chatting, right? They're, what they're talking about is going to be very, very significant. So, so you ask yourself, sort of in a preemptive sense, what is it that is going to be the subject of conversation between Jesus Christ God incarnate as he reveals his glory in Moses and Elijah. Well, what, what are they going to be talking about? Oh, did, you, did you see the game last night? You know, it was amazing. Uh, Jesus, you know, well done. Feeding 5,000, pretty good. You know, they, like, what are they talking about? Well, we're told in verse 31, they spoke about his departure. They spoke about his departure. Now, this is actually very interesting. The word that we translate as departure is the word exodon, exodus. And in Greek at this time, first century, it can mean departure, leaving, it's fine. But it's also the word, obviously, used to refer to the exodus of the Old Testament. That great moment where the substitutionary lamb shed its blood so that the children of Israel would not die, so that the angel of death would pass over them, which is, of course, where we get the feast of Passover from. The angel of death passes over the house. The Passover feast remembers when the angel of death passed them by. And why did the angel of death pass them by? It had nothing to do with their own morality. It had nothing to do with their own goodness. It had nothing to do with making the grade. It had everything to do with only one thing, and that was the blood of a substitute lamb covering the inhabitants of the home. The Exodus becomes the paradigm in the Old Testament that's brought forward into the New Testament of the great liberation through the shedding of blood and atonement for the people of God. So through the Exodus, you have God providing a substitute, bloodshed, death passes you over, but then you're also liberated. You're brought out into freedom, removed from slavery, you know, out into the promised land and out to a place where on Sinai you meet with God. You meet with the glory of God. You meet with the revelation of God. You meet with the word of God. And so here, Moses and Elijah and Jesus, they're talking about his exodus. They're not just talking about him going to, to, to Jerusalem and then and leaving somewhere else. They're talking about him going to Jerusalem to enact the great exodus, the fulfillment of exodus. All that that Old Testament exodus event pointed was and represented, all of its significance, 
does not find fulfillment in the Old Testament and in Moses. The Exodus itself is an extended prophecy pointing forward to what Jesus Christ himself will do. He was about to bring, or they spoke about his exodus, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Fulfillment language is massively theologically freighted in the New Testament. In other words, to fulfill something in these sorts of contexts doesn't just mean to to complete it uh, or to bring it about. It means to fill up all of the significance of it. And so what Jesus is doing in fulfilling the exodus in Jerusalem is he is going up to Jerusalem to show and to finally bring together all that the Old Testament exodus signified, all that it represented, all that it was, all of its importance. It's all bound up in what Jesus Christ is doing as he shows his glory and as he gets ready to go to Jerusalem because he's just said, I'm going there to die. He is going as the great Passover lamb to shed his blood at Passover time on the cross. And he says, I go there to bring these things to fulfillment. In other words, this is not just bad luck waiting to happen. This is not the random unfolding of historical contingencies. This is the preordained plan of God. I go there to die. I go there to exodus. And that is exactly what Jesus Christ does for us. And this is the subject that Moses and Elijah and Jesus are discussing. Nothing less than him bringing all of what Moses did to fulfillment. And that's an amazing thing, actually. Now, I, I, I wasn't there. And even, you know, you, you do learn a couple things in Bible college, but uh, what they exactly said is not one of them. And so it's dangerous to speculate. You can imagine, you know, what is Moses saying? What is Jesus saying? What is Elijah saying? You know, is Elijah saying, hey, Moses, Pretty great what you did back there, what the Lord did back there through you, but that was nothing compared to what Jesus is going to do. You know, what are they saying? Is Moses saying, wow, you know, what a privilege. It was, it was so awesome to see the hand of God at work in that event, but I've just been waiting in anticipation. Uh, Honestly, look, I've been looking forward so much, Jesus, to what you're going to do. So that at the end, and this is an incredible thing. The Exodus was the paradigm of redemption. But today, when we talk about redemption, we don't think about Exodus. We think about Jesus. And Moses knows he is, he is far surpassed. Jesus is going to do what Moses could never do. And it's not just, you know, the, uh, the, the blood uh, of a biological lamb. And it is not just liberation from physical slavery. It is the blood of the lamb of God. It is liberation from spiritual slavery to Satan and self and death. This transcends and surpasses all that Moses could envision in his own act in the Exodus, and recognizing, too, that all that Moses did was, at best, to sort of follow God. God is the one who did it. It wasn't Moses. It was God. And here, God, again, is doing it, because Jesus is God, and it is his Exodus that is going to bring all of redemptive motifs in Scripture 
to fulfillment. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, unlike any of you. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving, Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. And so Peter, like some people that I know, uh, when he doesn't know what to say, he just starts talking. Right. And I'm not sure if you can relate to that at all, but, you know, he doesn't know what to say. So he's like, well, I don't know what to say, so I may as well just start saying stuff, you know, and let's see if any of it turns out to be good. You know, now, it's always easy in some ways to, to poke fun at Peter, but it has been pointed out, rightly, that at least Peter didn't say, hey, it's good for us to be here. How about we build six shelters, Right. Uh, so he's not including himself and the other two disciples in this. You know, this is for Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. What he's really saying here is, let's build three tabernacles. Uh, let's let's build three special sacred dwellings. One for Jesus, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. But while he was speaking, a cloud appeared. And covered them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Now, where do you have sort of that collocation of themes? On a mountain, cloud, glory, Moses. This is clearly all Sinai imagery. Which then, again, connects you to the Exodus motif in terms of Exodus departure. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. No, no, small wonder. Because, one, you're rabbiting on and you have no idea what you're supposed to be saying, so you're saying stuff. But on Sinai, if you touched the mountain when the Shekinah glory cloud was manifest, you died. You died. Unless you're given special exemption, as Moses was, to go into the glorified presence of the Lord and receive the law. In fact... They even had to put perimeter fencing, boundaries, around the base of the mountain so people couldn't sort of accidentally wander too close. And then if someone goes and touches that mountain, you have to stone them with stones or shoot them with arrows. In other words, you can't even touch them. You have to kill them at a distance. Same for all the animals. So, small wonder, they are afraid as they enter into the cloud, because it's not just like they're up real at high altitude, and so a cloud happens to pass by. This is the revelation of the glory of the Lord. A voice came from the cloud, which is exactly what you have at Sinai, God speaking to deliver his law from the cloud on the mountain. A voice came from the cloud saying, this is my son whom I have chosen, listen to him. Now we have seen in Luke up until now that there are often times when people are confused about the identity of Jesus. Jesus asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? People have all kinds of different answers. Elijah, one of the prophets, Jeremiah. What about you? Well, you're the Messiah. Okay, I'm going to die. No, you're not. Massive confusion. And when G- Herod, in chapter 9, verse 9, Wants to know about Jesus. Who is this? Is this John the Baptist come back to life? Who is this guy? 
You know, the disciples on the boat, who is this? Even the wind and waves obey him. And of course, and they're somewhat answered by the man with a legion of demons. You are the son of the most high God. But here, here the identity of Jesus is made very clear with the same absolute sovereign authority and majestic splendor as any of the commands issued on Sinai. It comes with the authority of God himself. This is my son. No more confusion. No more questioning. No more human opinion. This is God himself. And really all he's doing is he's saying what he said at the baptism. When Jesus was introduced to the world, this is my son. Same thing. Twice God speaks from heaven. Twice God says, this is my son. He's not just being repetitious. He's hammering out, what must you know about Jesus? You must know he is God's son. Listen to him. Peter says, let's build three shelters. Jesus, Moses, Elijah. God says, no, there's only one. Do not put Moses and Elijah on par with my son. The writer of Hebrews develops this at length. Moses is honored as a servant in the household of God. Jesus is the son. There's only one son. Moses and Elijah, as great as they are, are not Jesus. He's an authority greater than Moses and Elijah. Now, a lot of people at this time will say, Moses and Elijah have a somewhat significant function. Moses represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets. And so brought together, what you're being told is that Jesus Christ is more significant than the Old Testament scriptures in its division of law and prophets. Now, I agree with that theologically, but I'm not entirely sure that exhausts the significance of why Moses and Elijah themselves are here. There's more to it. Uh, partly, obviously, from what we've seen, you have the whole Exodus, glory, cloud, mountain, revelation motif, which clearly does tie you to Moses, but which leaves Elijah somewhat unexplained in that context. Well, there are two Old Testament passages, one about Moses, one about Elijah, which are very significant and were taken to be very significant in Israel as they looked forward to the end times when God's prophet, Messiah, would show up, when the Lord himself would act. In Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, Moses says this, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. Looking for a Moses figure. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must... Listen to him. You must listen to him. What does the voice from the cloud say? This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. You cannot think, if you, if you are familiar with the Old Testament, you cannot think of Moses, revelation, prophet, and hear those words, listen to him, without hearing the very clear echo of Deuteronomy 18.15. There is an end times great prophet, like Moses, but who surpasses Moses, who will show up, and you will listen to him. So God is saying, this is my son whom I have chosen, listen to him. He is that greatest of all prophets that Moses told you about in Deuteronomy 18.15. 
Not only that, in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, we read these, See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. So the Jews were expecting a great end times prophet like Moses, and God had said, listen to him. And they're also expecting Elijah to show up. And Elijah's going to show up because the day of the Lord has come. And here you have Moses and Elijah together. And you have that voice, listen to him. Why? Because the exodus is coming to fulfillment in Jerusalem in Jesus. He is the fulfillment of Deuteronomy 18.15. Why is Elijah there? Elijah's there because the prophet said Elijah has to show up before the great day of the Lord. What is the great day of the Lord? The great day of the Lord is completely bound up with Jesus, God's son. And so Moses and Elijah, yes, they represented some level of the law and the prophets, but there's a lot more to it uh, than that. They are both figures associated with the end times, climactic appearance and work of the Lord. And so as a result, it says in verse 36, when the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. In other words, Moses and Elijah disappear. They're not needed anymore. All you need is one. Not three shelters, but one. Not three tabernacles, but one. There is only one Son of God. There is only one who has intrinsic glory that is revealed. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. In Matthew's account, we're told that Jesus tells them not to tell anyone what they have seen. And it's the same reason why they're not told to tell people that he's the Messiah. All he's going to do is engender confusion. The disciples themselves still don't get it. The disciples themselves still don't understand uh, what it means for Jesus to fulfill the exodus. The disciples themselves don't understand what it means for the Messiah to die. The disciples themselves have no idea what it means uh, to see Jesus and Moses and Elijah. They, They want to build three shelters and make them sort of equals. All great servants of God. And the incredible thing is for us, it would be the highest honor to have anyone think that we were on equal footing with a Moses or an Elijah, to be one of that trio. It'd be an incredible honor. And Peter probably thinks he is honoring Jesus by saying, oh, Jesus, you belong with them. You are in their league. And God himself in special revealed glory, say, no, Peter. No. No, Moses and Elijah, you don't understand. They're not in my son's league. No one is. This is my son. No one else. I have chosen him. He is the one. No one else. Listen to him. So that's the great command then. This is God's new covenant Sinai moment. And not a whole bunch of laws. Just one command. Just one. Listen to my son. But make no mistake, that is an authoritative command on par with anything on the Ten Commandments. Anything in the Old Testament law. This is a law. You listen to my son. That's all he needs to say. Because if you do that, the son is the one who in his own sermon on the mount, the son's Sinai. 
gives you the law for the new covenant community, gives you the law and the instructions and the commands for how you are to live your life. God spent a lot of time to orchestrate this event in power and unforgettable splendor and glory so that everyone would be duly impressed with the nature of his son for one reason. So that you would do what he said. So that even as a sinner, you would begin to understand, here is the one I have to listen to. The revelation of the glory is not just to wow everyone, it's to show you, look how great my son is, listen to him, listen to him, listen to him. And then today, it just begs the question, do you? Do you listen to him? He's not incarnate in this world at this time. You can't go this afternoon down to the park and hear the incarnate Jesus speak. But you have his word. I, I, don't, say this to, I don't say this to guilt anyone or anything. I, I don't. But if you neglect this word, then you disobey the command of God. Listen to my son. Wait, his son has spoken. This is his son's word. Charles Spurgeon said that willful ignorance is itself willful sin. In other words, if you just don't pay attention to what God has said, if you just neglect it, then that's a sin by itself. You can't say, well, I didn't know what Jesus said. Well, you chose not to know what Jesus said. There are no restrictions into how much time you want to spend getting to know Jesus. And today, that means study. Today, that means reading. Today, that means pouring over these things and, and learning them and thinking about them and, and walking in conversation with other gifted people who have thought and written about these things. I mean, it's unlimited today how much you want to engage with the Word of God. You, you, cannot, you cannot honor the voice from heaven that said, listen to my son if you neglect this word. You can't. It's just not possible. But what God has shown us is that it's not some sort of horrible thing to hear the voice of his son. Oh, who speaks like this? Power and grace, love and mercy. These are the words of eternal life. This is the one who went to Jerusalem to fulfill Exodus for you. This is the one who went to Jerusalem to die for you. And he has spoken to you. And God the Father says, listen to him, listen to my son. Let's do that. Let's be a people who in response to the glory of God, the glory of Jesus Christ, and the fact that Jesus Christ, as glorious as he was, did not shrink back from the humiliation and suffering of the cross. He did not just say, well, I'm, I'm the second person in the Trinity. I, I'm full of glory already. I'm not going to get my hands dirty in that world down there full of you know, wretched sinners. He said, I will go. I will love them. I will die for them. I will bring it all to fulfillment. I will be their redeemer. Not to gain glory, but because I'm already infinite glorious and I will show them the way to see it through my glory and blood and so when God tells us to listen to his son it's 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 what we were created to be and to do
It's why we're here. It's why we exist. We exist to listen to his son. Well, may God help us to do that then. May God help us to listen to the son and to live our lives for the one who lived his life and died in our place. I'm going to ask our musicians to come and lead us in our closing song.